Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. I've mentioned Catholic Answers several times, www.catholic.com. That's a great pro-Catholic resource for all things Catholic. In one of their tracks, it's called The Institution of the Mass, they quote John O'Brien, who was a Catholic priest. He was a professor of theology at Notre Dame, and he wrote a book in the 1930s called The Faith of Millions, which apparently was extremely popular among Catholics. So they quote this. Uh, this is about the Mass. Quote, on the cross, Christ really shed his blood and was really slain. In the mass, however, there is no real shedding of blood, no real death, but the separate consecration of the bread and of the wine symbolizes the separation of the body and blood of Christ and thus symbolizes his death upon the cross. The mass is the renewal and perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross in the sense that it offers Jesus anew to God. And then there's it, it, it skips a little bit. And again, I'm just quoting directly from the Catholic Answers website. It skips down a little bit and it says, And thus commemorates the sacrifice of the cross, reenacts it symbolically and mystically, and applies the fruits of Christ's death upon the cross to individual human souls. All the efficacy of the Mass is derived, therefore, from the sacrifice of Calvary. End quote. So today, and and for several episodes, we're going to be talking about the Mass. And so today is sort of like Mass 101. Um, and also, what is what is actually taking place during Catholic Mass? And you know, so you'll you'll know by the end of this how that is different from just your uh, average church service that you would go to. There there is something different about what's happening at Catholic Mass. And also what's the big deal? What's the difference? You know, aren't aren't Catholics and Protestants doing the same thing? Protestants have the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, they're they're doing the same thing. There's bread and there's wine or grape juice or whatever and it all symbolizes the same thing. So what's the big deal? What's the big difference? Again, hopefully by the end of the series, you'll, you'll be, it'll be very clear. Now, the issues between Protestants and Catholics regarding Mass is very complex. I mean, issues of justification come into play, which we've already talked about, atonement, sacrifice. There's biblical interpretation differences. Uh, there's church history differences and, and how we interpret what early church fathers are saying. I mentioned this in a previous episode. I forget how long ago it was, but when it comes to church history quotations, you, you can you can get into these quotation wars between Protestants and Catholics. There's so many writings of early church fathers and so many different quotes. And so if we take our modern concepts of, of different things in Catholicism and then look back into those quotes, um, sometimes it seems like those early church fathers, you know, believed in all the stuff that Catholics believe today. And that's just not the case. Um, so, so sometimes you have to ask, are they, is that really what they were assuming when they said that, you know, when they said that back in the 300s? Um, so I, I'm going to avoid a lot of the church history quotation wars type stuff. I'll probably give you some examples in, in future episodes, but just know that you can get on Google and read all kinds of quotes in for defending whatever belief you want to defend because there's there's so many people uh, we have we have so much information from early church fathers and and there was disagreement between a lot of them 
So the church history stuff can get really, really complicated. Anyway, today I'm going to explain the basics of Mass, and my my hope is that if a Catholic is listening to this episode, they would at least agree that, okay, this guy has done his homework, he, he's, he's, he knows what Catholics are stressing about Mass, and, and I, my hope is that I'm not attacking like... Um, false beliefs of Catholicism as far as like, I don't want a Catholic to say, well, that's not what we believe at all. Like this guy's completely got it wrong. Uh, My hope is that I've listened to enough pro-Catholic stuff to know, okay, this is what uh, Catholics truly believe. And and so, and and here are my disagreements with that. Uh, So hopefully a Catholic would be proud of me as far as how I'm explaining this. Now, in order to prepare for this and make sure that, that I've heard from the Catholic side of things, um, the great thing nowadays is that with after COVID, you can attend church virtually. Now, I hate this concept. You need to be involved in a local church. If you're not, then go to church and get out of your pajamas. But if you're sick or um, some people are just physically unable to physically to to go to church, then you know, great. I'm glad we have that resource. But anyway, when it comes to mass, I've been able to watch mass online and see how things go. And I mean, great camera footage and everything. So, it, uh, so I have attended mass virtually, I guess. Um, so I've, I know what goes on during those services. Also, there's a great YouTube video. It's about 30 minutes, and it's it's called A Step-by-Step Guide to Catholic Mass, where a Catholic priest sort of commentates. You've got video, and he's sort of commentating, okay, this is what's happening, and this is why, and this is why it's important for Catholics. And so uh, it, was, it was a really good resource to help me understand sort of the order of things that uh, during Mass. The Catholic Catechisms, it begins at Catechism 1324, and there's several catechisms that teach what, like, official Catholic teaching on Mass. The Council of Trent has teachings on on Mass, and that is important for me because the Council of Trent was basically a response to the Protestant Reformation. So there's a lot of applicable things that Protestants and Catholics disagree upon, so that's a, a really good resource as well. There's a I signed up for a free video series by Catholic Answers on the Eucharist. And so uh, I've, there's there's five videos that I've watched there. I've read some pro-Catholic books. So so a lot of times in interviews that I've when I've watched videos on Catholic Answers, they'll recommend different books. And so I'll I'll put those um you know along the way if I quote from them or whatever, I'll list those. And then as always, I've listened to lots of debates on uh, between a Catholic and a Protestant on mass, um, there there are several of them out there. My favorite one that I feel like where where both people really focused on the true issues and stayed stayed on those issues was between James White and Mitch Pacwa. So I'll put that link in the episode notes as well. And that's an that's an older recording, and so the I just have the audio of it. I don't know if it if it's on YouTube. I'll put it up there. Anyway, so basically, I've I've tried to <laughs> try to do my homework on what Catholic Mass is like and and what are the important issues. So I'm not exactly sure in future episodes how I'm gonna sort of lay this out. Again, it is very complicated um, the the various issues between Protestants and Catholics, and so uh, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, you can connect with me at bearchristianity at gmail.com or on Instagram at the real bear Martin. 
And this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by Gas Loans. From the makers of student loans comes a revolutionary way to pay for the things you need. Gas prices are at an all-time high. They are three times as high as they were two and a half years ago. Since our country does not have these resources itself, this price increase is completely out of our control. But don't worry, you can take out a gas loan. Gas loans allow you to go to work so other people don't have to. Interest rates are also high, but don't worry, you can bundle your gas loan with your student loan. That way, you are paying on them forever. Gas loans, it's better this way. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. All right, today we're going to just go through the basic order of Mass. Now, um, again, watch that video where the priest walks through it if you want detailed descriptions of every little step. So I'm just going over the, the a very basic overview of what happens at Mass, and we'll also define some terms along the way. So first, what is Mass? Why is it called Mass? Well, this comes from the Latin word Misa. And so Latin Mass ended with the phrase Ita Misa Est. And so Latin Latin Mass was first instituted by Jar Jar Binks from Star Wars. Um, and so if you're a Star Wars fan, hopefully you get that joke. Anyway, Ita Misa Est. Uh, it literally means go, it is sent. Or like in, in um, modern English, in, in Catholic Mass, a lot of times Mass will end with go in peace. Uh, there's other phrases that are acceptable in the Roman Catholic Church that a, that a priest may use, but the basic one would be go in peace. And so that's why it's called Mass. The last phrase of Mass has that word Misa in it. And so Mass is about the people coming together to worship, but then also going out into the world, kind of like the, the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So it's, it's both of those kind of wrapped into that word. Another word that I need to go ahead and, def- and define is the word liturgy, L-I-T-U-R-G-Y, liturgy. And that means literally public work or public duty. And so that's an, an older word. It's it's not specifically Catholic. And so it, it had a, a lot of general um, uses in, the, in Roman times, but it came to be in, in church. It sort of developed into this word which describes corporate or public worship in church. And so nowadays we have what one way of classifying churches would be liturgical churches, and so these are these would be churches with a with a very formal type of worship service. So obviously, Catholic Mass would would fall into that, but there's some Protestant churches as well that have a liturgical structure. And so there's some things that are repeated week after week. Um, such as, you know, like in, in Catholic Mass, the uh, scripture is read and then the people will say, thanks be to God. Or there's different congregational responses that if you go to enough of these services, you know what to say and when to say it and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think this is a very healthy way to worship. And, and I, I really like a lot of things about liturgical worship. So that it can be a really good thing because you're repeating over and over again each week uh, different different things. And that, you know, as, especially if you're there as a kid, you just remember all of those things. And, and I think in a way that's great as long as you're remembering the good stuff. Um, now, it can be unhealthy in that it can sort of have this feeling of, okay, let's just kind of 
you know, get through this. Let's just kind of go through the motions, say what we need to say so we can get out of here. If you approach it from that context, then then it can be a bad thing. And so to sort of combat this feeling of liturgy and, and this very structured, formal feeling, um, some churches would, would classify as non-liturgical churches. And so a lot of modern Protestant churches uh, churches in America, you know, you you have like a band playing. Um, there's some announcements and stuff like that, and then and then a sermon. But there's never this time of of this formal, um, you know, church. The the pastor may say something, the church responds. Um, you know, scripture readings, things like that. A lot of times are missing from non liturgical churches. So it's a little more free form. And so the the good thing about that is that you don't get in this rut of just repeating the same things over and over again without ever thinking about it. Um, and, but the, the problem is sometimes that the congregation is just left out. They are simply spectators that just come for a show, uh, both in music and then and then a you know a sermon that is entertaining to them, but they're not participating. They don't feel as if they're participating in worship. So that would be the, the two main forms of church, liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. So uh, I mentioned just a few minutes ago how I really like a lot of things about liturgy. So let me say this. This is going to be a weird phrase. I like mass, but sort of. <laughs> so obviously there's some there's some things about it that I don't like. Uh, mass has two main parts. There's the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so this is very biblical. Acts 2.42 says this, and this is talking about the very first, you know, earliest church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so in a very basic form there, you have the apostles' teaching. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? They were teaching the Word of God. So we know from the New Testament that the apostles were constantly showing Jesus in the Old Testament. And so you have teachings from the Old Testament, you have teachings from the Psalms, and then the apostles are the ones who wrote the New Testament. And so the apostles' teaching would include the New Testament and the, the Gospels as well. And so that's exactly what the liturgy of the Word, the first half of Catholic Mass is the liturgy of the Word, and it, the focus is on Scripture. And this is what I love about Catholic Mass. There's an Old Testament reading. The, the congregation usually sings a psalm. Then there's a New Testament reading, and there's a reading from the gospel. And then after the, the Bible has, you know, each of those sections of the Bible has been read, then there is a homily, and which is a, another word basically for the sermon. And so the priest is going to take one of those scripture readings or possibly, uh, you know, multiple ones if, they, if he can sort of tie them together, and he preaches or, or exhorts his uh, audience to live out what they just heard from the Word of God. And so I really like that. I, I think that is great. The, the focus is on God's word and you and the when you attend mass you're going to hear from the old testament the psalms the new testament and and the gospels as well and so I love that I th I think that's excellent now the second part of ma of mass is the liturgy of the eucharist and so in a very basic sense, I really like this as well. The The people of God are are having the Lord's Supper every week. So it's a constant reminder of the Last Supper with Jesus and, and all that that 
meant that Jesus is our Passover lamb, uh, lots, lots of different things that all tie together. It's a time for reflecting on the, the sin in our own life and, and sort of a self-assessment. We come to this in a very serious manner. Um, what I disagree with, of course, is what happens during the Eucharist in Catholic Mass. So now let's talk about what Catholics believe is, is actually happening during that part of the service. So I mentioned that we, after the liturgy of the word, you have the liturgy of the Eucharist, and it starts by preparing the altar. So the bread and the wine are brought forth, and the, the priest goes through some different things of making sure the altar is prepared for these, um, for these gifts. Now, then you have the Eucharistic prayer. So here's a quote from usccb.org. It's a pro-Catholic website. Uh, it says this about the Eucharistic prayers. The Eucharistic prayers make clear that these prayers are offered not to Christ, but to the Father. It is worship offered to the Father by Christ as it was at the moment of his passion, death, and resurrection. But now it is offered through the priest acting in the person of Christ, and it is offered as well by all of the baptized who are part of Christ's body, the church. This is the action of Christ's body, the church at Mass. End quote. Um, so what's happening during this Eucharistic prayer is, and, and the Eucharist, the church is essentially... Um, the, the priest is like taking the place of Jesus Christ, and, and the church is unified in that, and they are offering the same sacrifice to God the Father as, as what Jesus offered on the cross uh, during his passion, his death, and his resurrection. It says, again, but now it is offered through the priest acting in the person of Christ, and it is offered as well by all of the baptized. Now, what does Eucharist mean? Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. It comes from this verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. For I received from the Lord, this is Paul speaking, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, that uh, that is a derivative of the word Eucharist. So when, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's where the, the word Eucharist comes from. Now, Eucharist, even though it means giving thanks, it is a, Catholics will often use the word Eucharist to specifically talk about the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is under the species of bread and wine. So for a Catholic, they will call the bread and wine the Eucharist, the, those, that physical substance. They will call it the Eucharist, um, because they believe that truly it is actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is where we get into the idea of transubstantiation. So uh, during the Eucharistic prayer during Mass, the priest, it's, it's called the epiclesis. And so it's a prayer in, in the Catholic Catechism 1105. It says this, the epiclesis is the intercession in which the priest begs the Father to send the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, so that the offerings may become the body and blood of Christ and that the faithful by receiving them may themselves become a living offering to God. And so again, what's happening during Catholic Mass is the bread and wine are changed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, and then that is offered up to God as a living sacrifice. So they are, are, are offering the same sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross, but it's just done 
in, uh, in mass. And so uh, during the epiclesis, that's a prayer for the Holy Spirit to come and change this bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, the specific time that that happens is called the institution or the words of consecration. And so in Catholic Catechism 1353, it says, in the institution narrative, the power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit make sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine, Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once for all. So again, the, the priest is speaking as Christ, and when he makes these these words of consecration, that is when the bread and the wine become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned a book called The Faith of Millions by John O'Brien. He was a Catholic priest, professor of theology at Notre Dame. I, I quoted from that at the very beginning of this episode. In that same exact book, it says this, when the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of monarchs and emperors. It is greater than that of the saints and angels, greater than that of the seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin Mary was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest, who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vice-regent of Christ on earth? He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Alter Christus, for the priest is and should be another Christ. End quote. So that is what's happening when the priest speaks these words of consecration. So the priest, he will say, this is my body, and again, this is my blood. And so the, the priest in the Catholic mind, is speak, it's as if Christ was there speaking those same words. And by that power, by the words of Christ, that the power in those words, that is, and, and with Christ's power and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's when the bread and wine is changed literally into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we have to talk about transubstantiation, because I've said that it literally changes into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, um, but that's, that's sort of a loaded phrase. So transubstantiation, uh, think about the word transportation. Uh, to, to transport is to change location. And so transubstantiation is essentially a change in substance. Now, Aristotle was a philosopher. It lived in 350 BC, and so he had this uh, concept that that uh, everything was accidents or substance. So when I say those words, accidents and substance, I'm using them in a philosophical sense. I'm not talking about tripping and falling at being an accident. 
and a substance being just anything, you know, laying around in a, in a science lab, like look at all these substances in here. No, I'm using them as philosophical terms. Uh, so Aristotle sort of had this idea, and then Thomas Aquinas, who was born like 1225-ish, there's, there's a few different, um, different years for the date of his birth, but right around 1225 and died 1274. He's one of the greatest Roman Catholic theologians, so he takes this same concept of accidents and substances and, and uses that to explain transubstantiation. So the, the accidents and the substance, this, the best way to explain it to you is to let a Catholic explain it for me. And so this is from the Catholic Answers website, and in explaining this, it says, quote, In philosophy, substance refers to what a thing is at its core, while accidents are modifications of that substance. For example, people at the beach remain human when they go home because humanity is their substance, but their location is just an accident. And if that person's skin turns red from being at the beach too long, that is accidental change. Skin color is not determined by the substance of humanity because it is a difference among humans. Thus, to change skin color is not to go from being human to being non-human. So hopefully that helps you know what substance and accidents, what I'm talking about there and what the Roman Catholic Church is talking about. They are philosophical terms, so you have to just completely abandon the you know your normal use of those words. Um, and, and think about them the way Catholics are thinking about it. So with transubstantiation, I mean, Catholics, they're not trying to just be weird. Um, they, that when they're in mass and the priest says those words, it's not like, it, you know, when the Catholics are holding it, like it's not like they're holding a piece of skin. And, and when they drink from the cup, it's dr like drinking blood and it tastes like blood. Like if you busted your lip and then you can taste, taste the blood. It, that is not what's happening in Catholic Mass, okay? So what transubstantiation means is that the substance has changed, but the accident does not change. And so if, if you were in Catholic Mass and you snuck out some of the uh, bread and the wine and you went took it to a science lab and you looked at it in the small, like with an electron microscope, it would look... It would taste, it would feel, in, in all scientific experiments, it would be truly bread and wine. But what Catholics are saying is that miraculously what's happening is that the, the, the substance is, is changing to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. So they're, they're tasting what tastes like bread and wine, but it's actually they're actually partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is not just a, it's not just symbolic for the Catholic. The, the bread and wine are not just symbolic, and they're not just spiritual. In, in the Council of Trent, session 13, canon 8, it says, If anyone saith that Christ, given in the Eucharist, is eaten spiritually only, and not also sacramentally and really, let him be anathema. Now, why do Catholics go this far? Why, why do they believe this? Well, truly, they believe that they are being faithful to what Scripture says about the bread and the wine, and, and this will be future episodes in, in biblical interpretation and stuff like that. Uh, but just to explain it, two main reasons for this. In 1 Corinthians 11, the passage I read earlier where, where Jesus is, is at the Last Supper, Paul's sort of recounting the Last Supper, and Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. So they are, they are interpreting that very literally. 
And then also in John 6, verses 53 through 55, Jesus, this is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000. And so the people come back to him and, and there's, and John chapter six is a long chapter, lots of teaching by Jesus. But these verses say this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and so Catholics are interpreting that very literally and so that's where and, and so hence the development of the idea of transubstantiation that sort of came into existence based on these verses. The Council of Trent, uh, just a, a few further quotes from this, just to, to clarify what the Catholic position is. Uh, this is from uh, October 11th, 1551 in the Council of Trent. Because Christ our Redeemer said it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church. And this holy council now declares that by the consecration of the bread and wine, a change takes place in which the whole substance of bread is changed into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church fittingly and properly names transubstantiation. And then later on, of course, it says, "If any, this is a paraphrase, but just like everything else in the Council of Trent, it seems like, it says, if anyone denies transubstantiation, let him be anathema. All right, and so the emphasis for the Catholic is that during the Eucharist, during that time of, of the service, that Christ is really present through this transubstantiation process. You, they, are, they are literally partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the same sacrifice that was offered at Calvary by Jesus. So that would be their, their emphasis there. Um, and so, so after the priest, uh, you know, the epiclesis, and then the words of consecration. Eventually, the people come up and they partake of the bread and wine. Now, after the congregation takes the bread and wine, then the rest, because it is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the rest is is taken up and stored in a special place in the church called the tabernacle. And then some of the bread and wine is taken to like the poor or, or not the poor, the sick. Um, so if people are bedridden and, and they can't get to mass, then there's different people. You, you sort of have to like qualify that for this in Catholicism, but you can apply to be one of the people who can take the bread and the wine to the sick. And so it's stored. So in the church, there's this permanent place that's locked up. That's called the tabernacle. But then you can take it home, like just a, a few for like, if you have a, a family member or something that can't get to mass, you can take it in a in a little box called a PYX, P-Y-X. And then the, the wine or the blood of the Eucharist, that can be stored in this vessel and just, you know, it's... Great care has to be taken to make sure that it doesn't spill, um, that sort of thing. So that's how the pe people who can't go to Mass, that's how they still receive of the body and blood of Christ. Now, it, it's called the Eucharist, and the some Catholics are very sensitive you, you, that you don't call it the bread and wine after it's been changed. It is now the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a, um, a really good... 
pro-Catholic video on the Eucharist, and that and I'll put it on the uh, on the episode notes as well. So lots of links this week, but the very beginning they have this sort of dramatic retelling, and I think it was like 1912 or something. This Catholic Church catches on fire. And, you know, everybody's out of the building and the fire's just going to consume it. The, the fire department's there. And two uh, Catholic priests, or maybe they were monks, I forget who it was, but they go running into the building and they come back out with the, the bread and wine, which they believe is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so once it is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, Catholics take very good care of that because, again, for them, it is literally the flesh and blood of Jesus himself. And so they have times where you can come and, and adore the Eucharist and, and uh, pray before it. Uh, they, and so these, these priests, even though the building was burning, that is Jesus Christ, flesh and blood in there. And so they run into the burning building to, to save those elements. And so that you know that it, that's that's how serious Catholics take the um, the Eucharist. All right, now the problems, a, a couple of the problems, and this will just be real quick, and this kind of sets up future episodes. So uh, the problem, one of the problems, is that the the idea of transubstantiation is absolutely binding on the Catholic Church. Again, it's one of the Catholic dogmas. I've talked about this several times before. If you are not in line with all the dogmas of the Catholic Church, you are out of the church. And and some really serious Catholics would say that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. So they they make this binding. It you have to believe transubstantiation in the same way that you have to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and that he was resurrected. I mean, it, they they believe that you have you have to believe that the exact same amount. It is all de fide. It, you have to believe it in order to be a faithful uh, Roman Catholic Church member. Also, the the idea that this Eucharistic sacrifice is the same. They the claim is that they are offering the same sacrifice as that on Calvary. The problem is that when the Bible describes the sacrifice Christ made on Calvary, it's different from what is happening during Catholic Mass, and I'll go into that a lot more in future episodes. Now, some things just to to think about as far as like wrong arguments. So if you're just if you have some Catholic friends and you're just going to discuss this, the wrong way to go would be to accuse Catholics of like cannibalism. All right. That's not what they believe. Just don't even, it's not even worth arguing over to say that, man, you, you really think you're eating Jesus and drinking his blood? That's cannibalism. How, you know, that's crazy. Uh, just don't even go there. That's, that's not what Catholics truly believe. And so that's, it's pointless. Uh, also, to try to say that transubstantiation is ridiculous or impossible, that's actually to, to say that God couldn't do that. And so that's not what Protestants have a problem with. Um, so, so don't even go to talk about, well, it's actually you know bread and wine. If we took it to a lab, it would look like bread and wine. Why do you believe that this is magically the, the flesh and, and blood of Jesus Christ? Protestants have no problem saying God could do that. But the again, I believe that it violates what we're taught in Scripture about the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, 
uh, along with that, Catholics do not believe that they are re-sacrificing Jesus over and over again, as if Jesus had to be has to be killed every time Catholic Mass is said. So they're they're sacrificing him over and over and over and over again. No, the Roman Catholic claim is that they are offering the same sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and at Mass they are offering that same sacrifice to God the Father. Now, so the the problem I have though is that. You can participate in Mass supposedly offering that same sacrifice that, that we are told about in Scripture. In, in Catholic theology, you can participate in Mass thousands of times. You can go to Mass every day for your whole life, commit a mortal sin, and go to hell. So you can participate in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ thousands of times and still go to hell. That is a different sacrifice than what the Bible teaches about Jesus sacrifice. And so the focus tends to turn on what Roman Catholics have to do to be in a good relationship with Jesus Christ. We we got to do all these things that the church tells us we have to do and we have to go to mass on a regular basis because we, you know, one one time is not enough. We've got to continue to offer this sacrifice for our sin. And so it's it's the focus shifts to what Roman Catholics have to do. They have to do all the right things to stay in a good relationship with Jesus. The focus is on what Roman Catholics have to do and not what Jesus has done. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross.